So I am a native of the Rocky Mountains. I grew up in northwestern Montana. Amen. <laughs> Amen. There you go. And where I grew up, uh, the, the primary uh, supplier of jobs was Plum Creek, the lumber mill. Uh, I lived in the Flathead Valley where all, on all sides of us we could see mountains. I grew up with stories of my grandfather packing the horses in for several weeks into the Bob Marshall Wilderness to go elk hunting. I grew up in the summers playing in the woods with the smell of pine trees. I grew up in a place where the predators you were most afraid of were those that you could see that could growl, called bears, rather than those that you cannot see that are horrible like chiggers. And I grew up in a place where you went fly fishing and where you explored the outdoors. I grew up in a place that wasn't heavily populated. There weren't a lot of people around. I am the first of my family to graduate from college. And, and so this was the, the life in which I was raised and grew up in. And when I got married, my wife and I, we met, although we met in Texas, we, a week after our marriage, we moved to Colorado, back to the Rocky Mountains, where I worked in a church in Winter Park, and our heads hit the pillow at 9,000 feet elevation. Outside of our door, you could see the Continental Divide. I could clock it, and it took me 12 minutes to get from my door to a chairlift, and I could be skiing in just under 15 minutes. I am a son of the Rocky Mountains. I love the mountains. Some of you may be beach people, and that's great, but I'm a mountain guy. I love the mountains. I love the sound of chopping wood and splitting wood. That's how we heated our home in the winters. And so I share this with you so you have a little bit of a backdrop to understand what it was like then to move just after four years of marriage to New Haven, Connecticut. We were, the, things had been stirring in, the, in our life personally as well as in the church that we were pastoring at and it was clear the Lord was moving us to a college ministry at Yale University. And so imagine a young man growing up in northwestern Montana now being placed in the Ivy League. Now I was a candidate among 80 other candidates, all who had advanced degrees, graduate degrees, and I had just started seminary. And yet the Lord saw fit to take me from the Rocky Mountains out to New Haven, Connecticut, which if you don't know much about New Haven, it's an hour and 43 minute train ride north of New York City. It is very, very much a city and it's very much a New England Northeastern city. It's densely populated, there, it's multicultural, and there is a huge disparity between life on the campus of Yale University and then the surrounding city, which is very uh, depressed and crime-ridden. And we were placed two blocks outside of campus, that's where our house was, when we had dropped off our, vehicle, our moving truck and kind of unpacked, the police said, don't go any further that way because we can't protect you out there. Make sure you stay between here and campus. We were the only white people in our entire neighborhood. 
And so it was a foreign environment. We had a meth house, three houses down from us. And uh, so two, our first two children were born in Colorado, and our third child was born in Connecticut. But it was an interesting experience to go from the west, the Rocky Mountain West, to the northeast, to New England, to the Ivy League. It was, when I thought about it, it was what I would relate in my mind to what exile might be like. Like going from everything you know to be true to go to a place that is nothing like you know to be true. And the things that you experience and the things that you identify and you rely on when you're in a situation like that, it's, it's very interesting. It, the, the lengths to which we would go for my wife who born in, or raised in West Texas and Texan through and through, we would go, we drove one time two and a half hours just to find a Chick-fil-A. I mean, that's in, in a little bit of sweet tea. And so experiencing exile, if you've, if you've had that experience where you're in a place where everything is foreign to you, the language is different, the lifestyle, the pace, the priorities, the way that they do family, the way that they eat food, that gets an interesting experience and you feel very, very removed and distant and to feel like a foreigner is not a comfortable feeling. And we see and have experiences in the, the scriptures about exile. And the passage we're going to look at today in Jeremiah 29, it's an interesting passage because it's a letter that God writes through the prophet Jeremiah to the Israelites, God's people that are in exile. But the reading of our passage today, it should challenge how we look and understand exile. Because it, it really challenged my assumptions about exile. So let's, let's take a look at our passage here. Let's first of all understand the context. So the Israelites are in Babylon. They are in exile under King Nebuchadnezzar. They're there primarily for two reasons. Because of rampant idolatry and social injustice. They had, God had entered into a covenant, and we talked a little bit about the covenants last week, but God had made a promise to be their God and that they would be His people. And yet they are covenant breakers. They would, although honor Him in their cities, they would travel outside of their cities and worship false gods and sacrifice to false gods. They would also treat foreigners, widows, and orphans in ways that were contrary to what God had established for them. And so rampant idolatry and rampant social injustice. So God leads them into exile. And it's interesting, too, because you look at the, the context just a couple of chapters prior to 29, and there had been false prophets that had come to them and tried to just ease their, their fears about this exile. And the idea was that these false prophets, one of them by name of Hananiah, was trying to get them to understand that this, would, this wouldn't be very long. Don't worry, it's only going to be a couple of years, and then you'll be out of this predicament. It's not going to last long which then the, and the temptation would be, well, well, let's just hunker down 
let's just kind of hang out here and do our little thing until we're out of here in a couple years. We can endure this. We can suffer through this. We can put up with this. And then we'll get back to life as normal. But God specifically sends Jeremiah to correct that false understanding and that false expectation. Hananiah had had been prophesying to the Israelites in exile, telling them it's not going to be very long. Even though Jeremiah had been sent by God to put on a wooden yoke over his shoulders to resemble the yoke of exile that they were under with King Nebuchadnezzar. And Hananiah comes up to him at one point, even though Jeremiah said, Hananiah, I hope you're right. I hope it's only like two years. That would be great. However, that's not the message I'm getting. And also, you might want to be careful because the prophets that have come before us usually prophesy about pestilence and war and famine. And those that prophesy peace, if it doesn't work out, well, that doesn't always work out for them. But I hope you're right. I hope that's the way it is. But then God tells Jeremiah, you need to go to Hananiah and tell him that that's not how it's going to be. In fact, this, this yoke of wood that he's broken off of your shoulders symbolically is going to become a yoke of iron. And I'm actually going to, your, the Israelites are going to be there for upwards of 70 years. And that I'm going to also deal with Hananiah because he's falsely prophesied in my name. And so he does just that. So here's the situation. Jeremiah comes with a prophecy that they're going to be there for a while, even though it's, they probably wanted to hear and believe what Hananiah had to say. Two years sounds a lot better than 70. And yet, Jeremiah delivers this letter to the people that God sends them. Starting in verse 4 of chapter 29, prophet Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus the Lord of hosts says, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So, a couple of things to note about this situation. There's a few things we we learn or are reminded about God. First of all, that He does not compromise His standard. God will not look the other way or compromise His standard when it comes to sin. He has made a covenant with the people They have violated the covenant, and that has certain consequences, to be sure. And he decides to bring judgment on them through 
exile, and he chooses a nation that is absolutely wicked. It becomes the, the symbol of wicked nations and pagan nations, Babylon. And he uses this wicked nation as an instrument of his discipline and his judgment on his people because of their sin. So on one hand, he will not compromise his standard. The other hand, he will not compromise his plan either. Because he has a plan and a commitment to his people to do something in and through them that he will carry out in spite of their sin and in spite of their breaking of the covenant. He goes on to say, For thus says the Lord in verse 10, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So we see here he is a God that will not compromise his standard but he will also not compromise his plan and what he aims to accomplish in the life of his people. There's also something that's happening here. And it challenged me in the way that I saw exile. First of all, we have to recognize that the exile is from the Lord. It begins and ends the part that we read, I sent you into exile, declares the Lord. I did this. I started it. You're in exile because I am doing this. Exile is my instrument. It's a product of what he is using to accomplish his purposes. And so it brings up an interesting point. We touched on it a little bit last week, but this idea of the paradox that exists when God acts the judgment and deliverance that happens at the same time. The paradox here is that God uses exile in the life of his people, and it's not just punitive. He's not just punishing them. But he uses it to course correct. He uses exile as a means of deliverance and ultimately a means of blessing. And we don't normally think about it that way. Right? Exile, that's the bad thing. We don't want exile. And however, God uses it here as a means to accomplish his good purposes and deliverance for his people. In fact, he'll go on to say in 29, those that didn't go with you into exile, I will deliver upon them sword, famine, and pestilence. They will experience death to such a degree that the surrounding nations will be appalled. What? You mean life for God's people was going to be better in exile than had they stayed? That's what he's saying. He's saying life is going to be better for those that went into exile and were led by the Lord 
than for those that had stayed in Jerusalem. And ultimately, God would destroy the temple and allow that to happen through his means because of the false idolatry and the wayward living of his people. So one of the things that this, is, this has to challenge is our view and understanding of exile and the experience of God's people in that place. Because you'll notice what he says about their living while in exile. Okay, it's not, it's not a hunker down mentality and it's not a become one with the world mentality. That tends to be the Christian church response at times. When we're in the midst of an extremely dark and lost world, the temptation is to either bunker, right? Get together, holy huddle, protect ourselves. Let's just do our little thing here regardless of what's happening out there. Let's just take care of ours. That's one temptation. The other temptation is, well, no, we need to be out there in the world. We need to be out there saving them. And so the temptation sometimes leads to compromise and becoming indistinguishable from the world itself because we want to be approachable. We don't want to scare them off. We don't want to be the weirdos. And so we begin to look like the world. But realize the context here in Jeremiah is they did that thing and that's what led to the exile. They started to behave like the nations around them. And that compromised everything. Then they're listening to Hananiah and the other false prophets that are saying, hey, it's only going to be two years. You can last. And so the temptation there is, well, let's just endure. Let's just get through it. Let's not worry about them. They're already gone. Let's just take care of us. And notice that God says, nope, this is how you're going to live. First of all, you need to know, I'm the author of this exile. I'm doing this, and I'm doing it because I have a plan. And it's through this exile that that plan will be accomplished in your life. And here's how you're going to live. You're not going to hunker down, and you're not going to compromise. You're going to have families. You're going to build houses. And we're... What does it mean that they're going to build houses? It's not, KB Homes wasn't happening then. It didn't, I mean, it took more than a week and a half to build a full house. It took a lot of resources and a lot of time and a lot of people to build a home. It meant permanence. It meant established. And then it says, you're going to plant gardens. And not just plant them, but you're going to cultivate them and eat their produce. You're going to be there a while. You're going to establish yourself and you're going to live life there in such a way that you're going to get married and you're going to have kids and you're going to raise your kids and it's still not going to be over because you're going to give your kids in marriage and they're going to get married and they're going to raise their kids and you're going to have grandkids. Life in exile is life of flourishing, he says. I didn't send you in exile to hide, and I didn't send you there to compromise. I sent you there to live. 
Live as my people as you were always designed to live. Live to flourish. Live to cause life. Live in abundance as you follow me and worship me and seek me and live according to my ways and my statutes which produce life. And seek me and pray. Pray for the welfare of the nation in which you are in exile because in their welfare, that's where you're going to find your welfare. I've put you there and now you're attached to them. Your destiny, your welfare, your livelihood is connected to the people in which I've placed you. That's how you're supposed to live. Not hunker and not compromise. Live and cause life to happen. Think about it. Plant gardens, cause flourishing. Cause life. Get married, have babies. They raise, they have babies. Multiplication, cause flourishing. That sounds like the garden, the Garden of Eden. Live like I designed you to live from the beginning. Live to flourish. Live live to cause life. That's the lifestyle in exile. But not living without hope because he loves them enough to tell them and to manage their expectations that there is a day coming. You won't be in exile anymore. You will be home. There is a day. But in the meantime, live like I've called you to live. Pursue me and to live for the life of other people. Think about how that is in contrast to what caused them to be in exile. They're in exile because they weren't seeking the Lord. They were engaged in false worship and idolatry. And they weren't causing life for other people. How They were compromising life for other people. The foreigners, the widows, and the orphans. Those that had no right or claim in the land and could not have rights or privileges. So very difficult for them to have a livelihood. And yet he calls them to now live, pursuing him and life for them and others. Experiencing life as a foreigner. Someone who has less rights and privileges. And yet pursue abundance. And so, life in exile. What does that have to do with us? Well, the reality is, this lifestyle of exile is actually one that we should be able to relate to because we ourselves are in exile. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, as you are citizens of heaven, not citizens of earth. This is not your home. This is not your native land. We just sang about our king, what he's like, and how we will praise him. He's not like the kings or the politicians or the leaders of this land. However, we're called to pray for the leaders of this land and for their welfare and to live for their welfare. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, talks about as sojourners and exiles in the land, pray for those in leadership and authority over you. Our life in this place is to be like the life that they were called to live in Babylon. Build houses. 
plant gardens, eat their produce, get married, have babies, raise them, live your life, go to work, pray for your coworker, fight sin wherever you find it, fight for life, cause life, flourish everywhere you find yourself. That's what we're called to. That's the expectation. And it hit me this week as I was chewing on this passage. We're, we're more exiled than we let on because I was born a native to sin. I was born in it. No one taught me to lie. No one taught me to lust. No one taught me to sin. That was natural. That was home. But then I was exiled. God, in his mercy, forced me out of that. By the blood of Jesus, drove me from my native land into the kingdom of light. Out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, I've been called. And now I am in exile. But I don't want to go home. Because I have a new home. I'm a native of heaven. Citizenship, a hope laid up for me in heaven that awaits me someday, but not yet. Because I'm called to live here, worshiping him and living for the life of other people. It's cool to see how the Christians responded and how the prophecy was fulfilled from this point. Because in Jeremiah 31, we see... God give another covenant. It's called the new covenant. It says, Behold, the days are coming in uh, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. He says, For this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. The law will be written on their heart and that is exactly what has happened in the new covenant through the blood of Christ who has come into our hearts and now a heart of stone has been turned to a heart of flesh and now we can love freely the Lord of heaven. And we've been called into a new identity and a new citizenship, exiled from the old way into this new way of living. And we now live amongst people that live in the domain of darkness. And we as sojourners and exiles are called to express to them life and abundance, to live so that they may have life. And you see that in the first century, that one of the reputations that these first century Christians started to, to take on was, was affecting the culture around them. They lived in a Gre Greco-Roman society where the status and the rights and privileges of people, you could see almost like a concentric circle. In the middle was the, were the people that had the most rights and privileges in that society, and that was free-born males. If you were freeborn male of Rome, you had all rights and privileges. The further you got from that center of that concentric circle, 
the less privilege and the less freedom you had, and the less likely to have life you had. And so you see that within that, their society. Those on the fringes, foreigners, women, and children, those that are enslaved, they had no rights, no privileges, unless a freeborn male acted on their behalf. And so one of the reputations of the early Christians was that they turned that social norm on its head. And they were known to be a people that treated women better, treated children better, and treated foreigners better. And the way that they treated their slaves were almost like equals. They had a reputation. To the extent that in the 4th century, the emperor Julian, the Roman emperor, because of the Christians and their response to widows, orphans, and slaves and foreigners decided to set up social programs and philanthropy because he was being outdone by the Christians. And people were more prone to trust them and give allegiance to the Christians than they were to the Roman Empire. So he had to act because he was being outdone in love for his own people. Tertullian talked about Christians in the 2nd and 3rd century responding to the, the discarding of babies in trash and dung piles outside of the city because it was common that in the Roman cities, the human refuse and all the trash would be piled up outside the city. And it was very common for hundreds of years for Romans, if they had a baby girl or a boy that was deformed, to discard them because they weren't actually people. And so it was, if they were undesirable, you just got rid of them. But Christians responded to that, and there are stories told of Christians climbing through dung piles looking for crying babies and raising them as their own. And you can go to the catacombs today, and you'll see a lot of the names under the catacomb uh, burial places, the adopted son, the adopted daughter. Adoption was not something that happened in Rome. It was only something that happened among the Christians. So they responded because God's love had been poured into their hearts and they responded out of love and flourishing for others. Brothers and sisters, we are in exile and we need to live as God's people are called and expected to live while in exile. And that is not hunkering down, not compromising, living for the flourishing of every single person God brings into your life. Cause life. It's simple. Cause life to happen around you, in your home, starting with your marriage, with your siblings, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your fellow students. Cause life to happen. Look for opportunities to inject life Joy, goodness, truth, beauty. Fight for life. What are the dung piles in our society where people are disposing of life and how do we go in and a willingness to sacrifice our life so that others may live? That's the Christian call in exile. Live so that others may have life. Live for the welfare of those around you. That's what we're called to. And so we see in our text today a challenge to our 
maybe our common assumption about exile, that in God's economy, exile is his tool to bring about flourishing. And we go through times of challenge and seasons that we would describe as exile, as, as feeling like foreigners, discomfort, pain, and suffering. And those are the seasons that God uses to cultivate faithfulness to him and life for other people. So if you find yourself in a season of suffering and pain and you feel like you're in exile, know the character of your God, that he loves you. And he means for this season to produce life. And not just for you, but for others that know you. Realize that you've been called to this place at this time and that you find yourselves right now in Williamson County because God wants to use you here to bring life to other people. That's why you're here. And so let's embrace this reality and let's live to cause life around us.